If you can remember back to when you were at school, you remember on the playground and they were picking teams? Remember that moment? Oh, no. Yeah, because, you know, like the two leaders would be up there and they'd be going, oh, I pick you for my team because you're awesome. And you're standing next to the guy and think, oh, that was, no, it's not me. He's getting picked. And then another guy, the other captain, he or she, they, oh, I'll take you because you're good at this. You come and stand by me. One by one, teams get picked, eh? You're standing there and their eyes are piercing through to your heart that's now quite fragile. And you're like, please pick me. You know, I don't know. Of course, I was never the last one to get picked, but... But I, okay. <laughs> I can imagine what it was like. You know, were you one of the first to get picked, or were you one of those ones that was the last thought on their mind? You know, you don't have to put your hand up to that, Aiden, but it's, it's a question that I ask to provoke where you're at in preparation for the message that I bring. Because this morning, I'm going to talk about living from the shadows. If you're taking notes, and I hope you do, the title of my message is called From the Shadows. We're going to look at three people this morning in the Bible. We're going to see what the Lord would show us about his heart towards us. You see this story here on these pages, or if you've got it on a device now, you know, Pastor Jeff's one of these modern trendy people with a device. If you've got it on these pages, his story is his heart towards all people. So we're going to look at the story this morning and hear what his heart is. And as we've prayed, I have confident expectation that his word is going to come like a two-edged sword. It's going to divide between soul and spirit like bone and marrow and bring revelation of truth that we need to hear where we're at individually and corporately as a church. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited. Are you excited? Cool, cool. Um, now, I, I must confess, though, I do have an appointment to be at at 2, so I'm going to have to be finished by then. Is that okay? All right. As long as you get to the cricket. Okay? I, I didn't actually ask what time I'm supposed to finish. What time do I get off? Okay. When you throw something at me, I'll get off. Flip, is that the time? Good, no. Okay, let's look at a young slave girl that got taken to be a wife. So um, Genesis chapter 16, uh, we pick up the story of Abram and Sarai. And we know God's promised them a baby. He's promised a future, actually nation, and nations to come out of Abram. Remember the story eh? in Genesis 12 when he's called? And they're having a little bit of trouble seeing that come to pass. So Sarai says in the beginning of chapter 16 of Genesis, she says, Look, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so go take my servant Perhaps I can have children through her. So Abraham's like, oh, a young, dark-skinned girl with nice, beautiful black eyes. That seems like a good idea. I might take her as my wife. And he does. And she does get pregnant. And the moment she falls pregnant, she starts despising her mistress, her master's wife, which is Sarai, and treats her with contempt. And so in the midst of that, We've got, we've got Sarah now in verse 5 saying to Abram, this is all your fault. If only I could understand the mind and the heart of a woman. It's not revealed to me here, but anyway, the result of that is she's, Abraham washes his hands of it and says, do what you want. 
And so she does. And she treats her quite harshly to the point where Hagar, it says, runs away. Pause for a moment and consider what that must be like. Because Hagar is fleeing for her life. She's a slave. She's Egyptian. She's property of Abraham. And she chooses, because things are so harsh, she chooses to flee and run for her life. Because if she gets caught, she gets killed. So it must have been pretty bad. She's already been separated from her family. She's sold into slavery. She's taken as a wife. Finally, she thinks she's going to get loved. She gets treated like dirt, and she runs for her life. Has she ever been loved? I asked myself when I was reading the story, and we don't actually see whether she was or not, but I'm trying to paint a picture of what it was like for Hagar, a young girl, pregnant with a baby, hopeful, and yet hated. It's pretty stink, really, eh? So she runs away. And what I love about it, it says that the angel of the Lord found Hagar behind a spring of water in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord is a phrase that's used many times through the Old Testament, and some theologians believe that it's a physical manifestation of Jesus himself. Maybe she met Jesus. Jesus the shepherd. Jesus the shepherd who pursues people to reach out to the lost, the hurt, the broken, and the lonely in order to find them in the place where they are and to bring God's heart to them. So that hope comes back. Doesn't matter where you hide, doesn't matter which direction you run, the shepherd knows where his sheep are and is willing to pursue them in order to connect with them again. What a beautiful picture. God finds her. And he says, Hagar, where are you going? What are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm running away. He's like, well, get back there. And this encounter happens. What I love, there's two aspects of the story that I love. First and foremost is that the angel of the Lord, God, God sees Hagar. And we know that she's got that revelation because she actually declares, I shall call you Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees me. It's a special moment where Jehovah, Yahweh, takes on a name because a, a young girl sees his nature and declares it out loud. Jehovah, you shall be Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees me. And I love that phrase because it encourages people, encourages me, encourages others I meet, that wherever they're hiding, whatever dark corner they think they've put themselves in or have been put in, Jehovah El Roy is the God who sees us. It's the first aspect I love about the story. Second aspect I love about this is not only does God see her, but she gets to see God. This Egyptian girl who was not raised in a Hebrew environment, we're just seeing the beginning of the Hebrew people. We're just seeing Abraham's family forming. We know Abraham has a unique relationship with God. He has a personal um, hear-him-talking kind of relationship, okay, like Noah did and like um, Adam did. But this Egyptian girl is a slave. She's not included in that. But what I love about that is God is so gracious, the shepherd is so loving, he goes and he pursues her and he finds her and he reveals himself to her. So not only does God see her, she gets to see God. You know, and in relation to this message, God actually calls her back to the shadows. Go back to the house of your master. Submit to Sarai. And I will birth out of you a nation. You shall call this man Ishmael, which means God hears. And from him will come a nation. And he will be a wild man. And the story goes on. 
but he calls her back. For that prophecy to come, she must go back to the shadows. I find that interesting because as I've been pondering this for you guys, I discover that the shadows aren't always that bad. Don't miss what God's saying here for us. Because when I prayed for you, I'm going to give you the punchline now, and then I'm going to carry on. The specific single word that God gave me for this morning in relation to this group of people in this church was kind of one that I had to wrestle with. I wrestled with it to seek clarification. I wrestled with it because it's really not relevant to the seminar. I wrestled with it because there's a number of ways you can take it, and yet um, as I've travelled, as I've traversed, I've been, um, I've been in a lot of locations in the last two weeks doing a lot of things, and I keep coming back to this. And the word God's given me for this morning, which is why I'm speaking about living from the shadows, is the word obscurity. What does obscurity look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? Are you hiding? Or do you feel unseen? Are you running away from where the Lord has placed you? Are you missing opportunities? either by your own efforts or the efforts of others? Do you feel undervalued? Do you feel unloved? Do you feel in limbo, just hanging around and waiting? Now, I'm asking provocative, penetrating questions on purpose because I want to cut to the heart this morning. More importantly, I believe God wants to touch our hearts this morning if we have a need. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously talking about the shadows, but don't just think that being in the shadows is a bad thing. We've got to be careful, though, if we find ourselves in the shadow, that we don't allow the feelings while we're in the shadow to distort our heart and poison it. We can't allow our heart to be adversely affected by our dominant feelings. Hagar was called back to the shadow by God himself. I had a season in my life where I lived in the shadow, Neil knows about it. As he shared, we've walked through a lot together, and I'm really, really grateful for that. This period of my life, um, everything that I was doing, everything I was touching, just ceased, stopped, wound up, and all of a sudden I found myself with nothing to do. Everything I'd worked on had come to a conclusion or was closed. The doors were closed, and I was like, God, what's going on here? He's like, you're in the shadows. You're to wait. Now, I understand, the guys will understand this more than the girls, perhaps, but as a man, not being able to provide or lead my family is quite, an, it's quite a hard place to find yourself in. Because we're wired to be the hunter and gatherer and provider, and the risk in that is that we could, we could shape our identity from that place, and when we're not able to fulfill that identity, our heart gets twisted and said, well, you're a loser now. And if we believe that, our heart gets poisoned. So this is the place I find myself in, and um, by the grace of good friends and God's love and plenty of coffee, I managed to get through it. But the danger, the risk there was I have to translate the feelings in my heart in order to align them with the truth of what God was saying in the moment. So I'm acknowledging that being in the shadows isn't always a bad thing. I did feel hopeless and helpless, but God had me in a season, and I was dependent on his goodness leading me out of that season. He is the Father. Because if I allowed my heart to be misled by my feelings, I could suddenly choose to believe that I was in the shadows because I wasn't worthy of his love. And that's actually not true. I have to identify that as not true, which makes it a lie, which means I won't partner with it, which means my heart doesn't get poisoned. 
Because when the enemy sends you a seed or a thought or an arrow and you allow it to lodge and take root in your heart, a seed turns into a tree. A tree goes bad fruit. Bad fruit is poisonous. Condition of the heart. There's another young guy in the Bible I want to talk about this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. He's the son of King Saul. So who's King Saul? King Saul is a man chosen by God to lead his people. Remember Samuel the prophet was wrestling with this because the people had rejected God by rejecting the prophet. And God says, don't worry, Samuel. Don't be offended by this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't realize what they're asking for when they ask for a king, but I'm going to give them a king. And they might not like it, but this is the new way we're going to do things for a while. And the prophet goes, yes, Lord. Identifies Saul as the king. Saul is celebrated as the king. And very quickly we find out he's an egg. Motivated by selfish ambition. Tall, handsome, rugged, strong, and insecure. Like a, like a leaf flapping in the breeze. And just before this, the prophet says to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, get them around the right way. The prophet says to the king, go down there and wait for me. And when I get there, we are going to offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord's hand will be with us and we will go into battle and we will win. Saul says, great idea. I'll go ahead with of you. And he goes down there and he paces and he waits. And, and Samuel, the prophet doesn't come and he doesn't come. And Saul starts to panic and the army are there and. There's not a lot of fighting equipment in the team and Saul's getting worried. He's like, if God's not with us, we're in trouble. And so what I'll do, because obviously this is what Samuel was wanting me to do, I'll offer the burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And you can read in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel how Saul makes the burnt offering before God as they go into battle. All of a sudden, with a wisp of smoke still rising off the altar, the prophet turns up. What are you doing? What can I smell? What's going on? And Saul says, well, you know, you're a bit late. And so I thought I'd take it into my own hands. And what I've done is I've offered the burnt sacrifice to the Lord as we go into battle. Cheesy grin. And the prophet says, you egg. Today, the Lord has taken your kingdom from you. You have disobeyed the God of the heavens and the earth, because he, you know, it goes on later, obedience is better than sacrifice, that's where we get that phrase from, but he says you're an egg, and today your kingdom has been taken from you, and if you look at it here, actually he says foolish, how foolish are you, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you, had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he has already found him, and the Lord has appointed him to be the leader, because you haven't kept the Lord's command. So God had his eye on David, even though we haven't met David yet. And Saul messed it up. Not the point, though. Come down to chapter 14, we read in the headings of my Bible, it says, Jonathan's daring plan. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan's the son of the king, who is Saul. Jonathan's daring plan is such that he says, look, the army's over there. He's heard what's going on. And he says, why don't we... Have a read of the story sometime, because it's amazing. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, who incidentally carries Jonathan's armor and has none of his own. A, let's just not be that person. Jonathan didn't tell us what father was doing, but he says, blah, 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 let's go up here. Verse 6. I love this. 
let's go across to the outpost of the pagans, meaning the Philistine army that outnumber them 30 to 1. Let's go over there. Listen to this. This is what Jonathan says. Perhaps the Lord will help us. You and me, I've got armor. You don't. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Let's go and see. What's more than that is, is the crazy idea he's got is, well, let's climb up this hill, which means we both have to put our safety equipment on our back so we can climb up the hill. And then, based on how they react to the two of us turning up, we'll know if God's with us. He didn't learn this in military school. And the servant goes, all right, whatever. I'm with you. <laughs> we'll be running for the hills. Okay, Jonathan says, let's cross over. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop. <laughs> anyway, but if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll go. You and me, with my, with my sword. We'll go and fight them if they invite us to. What the heck? What a crazy idea. And you know, the, the good news is, God turns up. But my point is this. I'm giving you context so you understand who Jonathan is. Jonathan's the son of the king, the prince. But now he's not. Because half a chapter earlier, his father was despised and rejected by the Lord. And the Lord said through the prophet, your kingdom has been taken off you. Which means, where does that put Jonathan? He's no longer the prince, is he? He's got no legacy. He's got no kingdom. He's not going to wear the crown when his father dies because the kingdom's taken away. So he's actually the son of a rejected guy with no future. And yet, he says, from this place of the shadows, because he's now in the shadow of David even though he doesn't realize it, from this place in the shadows, let's go and kick some butt. And you know, what God showed me through this is Jonathan, even though he has no position in the kingdom, it doesn't stop him stepping into the battle. I don't care who you are. I don't care what seat you sit in. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, how long you've been around, what your job title is, or how long you've even been saved. I don't even care if you are saved. From the shadows, we can achieve great things when God's with us. Don't ever use the shadows as an excuse that it's not your time yet. Jonathan shows us that God's time is when it's perfect. We can, we can have victory from the shadow. But don't let that lack of position or, you know, there's, about, there's authority and submission. Jonathan was still submitted to Saul, who was the king at the time. I'm not talking about being disobedient. I'm not talking about not being submitted. I'm talking about not making up excuses based on your lack of position. Finally, let's talk about a beautiful girl who's actually, unfortunately, robbed of a love story. We find Esther living in exile. Book of Esther is a, is a short story. It's a good story. It's one you should read. I'd recommend it. We find her living and hiding in exile. Why do I say hiding? Well, she's actually pretending she's not a Jew. Why is she there? King Nebuchadnezzar, a previous king, turned up, took all the cool people and stole them, overcome Jerusalem and is now ruling the entire province 
and the, the new king, King Xerxes, um, is on his throne in Susa, and he's a grumpy, drunk old bugger. He's got a temper, and you do not want to be anywhere near him. Just see what he did to his first wife that we read about, Queen Vashti. He has a party, too much to drink, and things go bad. Anyway, we find Esther. Esther is in the kingdom. She's got no parents. They were probably killed in the hostile, hostile takeover of the Jews. Why do we know that? Well, she's, she's an orphan. She's adopted by her cousin Mordecai, who has raised her since a young girl in his home. He's like a father to her. And he's a superstar in the story. But we know she has no parents. She's adopted. Something shocking happens, though. The king has some idea put in his head. And he decides that he's going to replace his queen, Vashti, with a new queen. So he has this national beauty pageant. But it's a beauty pageant with a different outcome. What it is, is actually the, the nationwide drafting of all the beautiful virgins to get forcefully taken into his harem. All the young girls, innocent, pretty, full of hope, get forcefully taken by the king's eunuchs and put as prisoners into his harem. Now they're there, so you might not be a young girl, but imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden have all your hopes and dreams for your future taken away from you. You are captive in this place. It's part of the palace, which probably means it's beautiful, but you're a prisoner. You have these men taking care of you. They've got a 12-month beauty program to bathe you in some weird stuff to make you smell nice and look nice and keep your skin pretty. And there's a dreadful day coming, which they tell you about. So you're psychologically conditioned to expect something to happen to you that we probably don't want to really talk about. But when the day has come for you, as Esther was, t- was, was taught, the day would come where every new young virgin girl that was part of this pageant would be taken to spend a night with the king in his bed. And the next morning, she would get banished off to another harem for all his concubines, all his wives, like a collection of trophies, or china, in a china shop. One might catch the heart of the king. And if she caught the heart of the king, she could become queen. But we've got a drunk, angry guy who's now got an obsession with young girls. What's the chance? He's got an appetite he's trying to feed. So I tell you that to build context around the life of Esther. This beautiful young girl living in a foreign land, pretending she's not who she really is. We find her in the shadows in the harem, but then she quickly wins the favor of the chief of the house, and he treats her very special. You can read that in chapter 2 of Esther. She goes on that fateful day to spend her time with the king, and she catches his heart. It says... In verse 16, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace early winter of the seventh year. The king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the crown on her head and declared her be queen. So she, she wins the heart. 
And then she gets sent to the Queen's quarters. You know, it's, like, it's an interesting story, and we, we, we know the story. I mean, if you've read the book, you know the story. She still, interestingly enough, it says after this, she still keeps her family background and nationality a secret. So as a young Hebrew girl, she was taught God's commandments by Mordecai. She was taught the rituals, the prayers, the commandments, the sacrifices, everything. And yet she's in this place, and he says, we must not reveal who we are for fear of our lives. So she hides in the shadows. We know the story and we know it well. It's great. It's good news. In chapter 4, Mordecai picks up on something that's going on. Haman's trying to kill all the Jews. He's trying to wipe them out. He's a poisonous man. There's actually a whole whole other lesson in the battle between Haman and Mordecai, which goes back to the Amalekites versus the Israelites as they came out of the promised land. This is flesh versus spirit in this kingdom. But Esther... You've heard the phrase, eh, that he says to her when he sends this text message? Perhaps you were positioned for such a time as this. You remember that? We quoted enough. You're in the palace. You're the queen. Our people are going to be killed because of a lie. Perhaps you are positioned for such a time as this. She's like, dude, do you remember if I go to the king and he hasn't asked me, I could be killed? You know the law? You've sat at the gate of the king. You know what happens? The poison in this nation. I'm paraphrasing it. She says, fast for me. Pray for me. Get all the Jews together. We will rise and I will go to the king. And if I die, I die. This young girl. We know the outcome. She finds the acceptance of the king. The the Jews are spared. Haman is killed. All his sons. Mordecai gets promoted. It's all, it's all happy, happy, happy. But there's one aspect of the story I want to highlight before we close, and that's this. As you read the story, read the book of Esther this week, there's almost no mention of God at all in the story. I think it's three or four times God gets mentioned. In the whole book, there's nine, nine chapters, I think. And yet, and yet, and yet, as you read it, you can see the hand of God all over her life. You can see him orchestrating things behind the scenes. And I say that to encourage us this morning, that God's hand is always at work in our lives. You know, when I'm, I told you about the time when I'm in the shadows, I'm at home, I'm like, God, what are you doing? I've got nothing to do. And he's like, just mow the grass. I'm like, what the heck? What I can't see when I'm in that moment is the provident hand of God working in my circumstances. In hindsight, I can sit back now and go, oh, look at that, look at that, and look at that. Oh my goodness, God, you're amazing. We read this story, and we read the end of it, and we look backwards and go, of course I can see what God's doing. But were you in the hole or in the shadow or in the darkness? Not so easy, is it? We've got to have confidence that God is sovereign. We've got to have confidence, we've got to have truth in here that his providence is always going to prevail. What does that mean? God's providence is defined as the mighty sovereign hand of God at work to care for and protect his loved chosen ones. You're his special possession, which means he chooses to put his hand in your circumstance and lift you up and take care of you even if you can't see it or acknowledge it. 
What else does providence mean? Providence means that he is working now for future outcomes that you can't see because he's outside time. That's what God's providence... We've got to get the truth in our heart and our spirit to know that regardless of our circumstances, God is always at work. God is always in a good mood. God always loves us. He will prevail in our circumstances. God's providence will prevail. Whether you're a broken stained glass window waiting to be mended, whether you're someone that feels hurt and lost and forgotten in the shadows, God's forgotten about me. No, God is sovereign and his providence prevails. It's a truth I tell my heart all the time. God is sovereign and God prevails. Sorry, I'm getting excited about this. I get excited about God. So, it's time for a heart check. Why did I come? For a heart check, for all of us. And the way that I like to do a heart check is I like to use scripture. Because scripture speaks truth beyond what we understand. It speaks revelation. God's spirit is now speaking to our spirit, communing one in order to bring us together. And so as I speak about obscurity, I'm actually asking... This is not a responding thing. This is a you questioning and checking your heart. Do a heart check. When I talk about obscurity, when I talk about living in the shadows, when I talk about possibly missing out, does something in you get a little bit uncomfortable? Just check it out. Is something going on inside you where you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of don't feel so good when he's talking about that? Is the, is the Holy Spirit nudging you? Because what I find the Holy Spirit does, if we allow him, is he shines his light into the corners and the recesses of our heart in order that we might bring things into the light so that it has no control over us. The things you bring in the light, God can redeem. The things you choose to leave in the shadows, he's too gentle to chase it. He trusts you, but he gives you the choice about your heart. So I've got an invitation here to respond to his truth about you. I'm going to read to you from Ephesians. I'm going, to, on this, I'm going to read it from the New International Version this morning. And I want you to listen as his word speaks to your heart to bring healing and restoration to areas that might be broken. I want, to, I want you to listen so that he, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the truth, can bring health to areas in your heart that might be depleted. I'm expecting, I have faith, that he's going to bring strength to areas of your heart that have been weakened through lack of hope. That's what I believe this morning. So I'm standing and believing that. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. He predestined you into adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. He's happy to choose you to be his child and he's done everything necessary to bring you to a place where you stand before him righteous and redeemed and fully perfect in his eyes. That's a safe place. That's a posture I've got to take. It's a position I've got to step into. In faith, regardless of my circumstance, I step into my adoption as a son of, Jesus, of, of God through Jesus Christ. And through faith, I stand there going, you know, if you're a lady, I'm a daughter of God because God chose me 
and paid the price for me. When you stand in that position, your heart's safe, your heart's healthy and your heart's whole. If we read down the page a little bit further in in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, you, 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 all of you, were included in Christ when you heard his message of truth, the gospel of your personal salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Who was it promised by? The Father. The Father has put the Holy Spirit in you when you responded to the message of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. In a different part of Scripture, Paul calls it a first fruit, a small portion of what we'll get later. It's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption of those who are God's possession. So we get the Holy Spirit as a first fruit, as a small part, as a deposit, that is a guarantee. God's word is never changing, and what he says, cannot go, he cannot go back on that. He's saying if you're in, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, it's a deposit, guaranteeing, I'm coming back for you, and you'll be made perfect. We've got to count on God's promises, people. You know, like, I can't count on petrol prices, I can't count on some of my friends, I can't count on, you know, I won't get into politics, but we can count on God. Let me just say that. Let's, let's get to the end of chapter 1. This is such a powerful passage, this last bit of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 17, Paul's, Paul's saying, I pray for you, my, my church. These are people that he loves, that he cares for. He's got Timothy there being the pastoral support, but he's speaking in his apostle into them as their father of faith, saying, I pray for you all the time. My heart is for you. I think about you and you give me joy. My heart grows every time I think of you because, oh my goodness, God loves you so much. And then he starts saying this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Well, you know what I did when I was in the shadows? I spent hours on my face weeping and worshipping before God because of who he is. I would play music. I'd read scripture. I'd get people to speak to me um, through teaching. And I'd go, God, you're amazing. You are unbelievable. I can't even begin to describe how awesome you are. Jesus, your face is beautiful to me. You paid the price for me and I'm a sucker. But you came anyway and you chose me. And as I do that, the wisdom and the revelation that comes through his spirit into me helps me to know him better. Take time to get to know God better. Take time to learn to love him in a new and fresh way. God is so... This sounds like an understatement. God is so big, you'll never grow out of things to learn about him. And Paul says, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will be in you. That may know him better. Then he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that he's called you to. What is that hope? Eternity with him. Always loved, always cherished, always part of his family, never ever separated from his glorious presence. That's the hope Paul's talking about. That you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in all of us together as one family. You spend time with God, you're going to get to understand that in greater ways. You're going to have a greater confidence of what he saved you into and what he saved you for. This is Paul's prayer for every single one of us. It's speaking life and light and hope into every situation, regardless of where you are on your journey. This encourages you. Well, encourages me. You can get some if you like. 
Verse 19 says, once we know the inheritance, we know his incomparably great power for us who believe. There's one translation that says it this way, that we would know his incomparably great power that's in us who believe. I have a piece of that. Because then he goes on to say, because I know what's coming, then he goes on to say, it's this same power that he used and he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Well, hang on, back up. The power that got Christ out of the grave, he was dead, he became alive, he became glorious, and now he's seated in heaven. That, that power that we're talking about there, Paul's hoping that you realize you have it in you. Well, if God's power that raises the dead is in me, what could I do? Pretty much anything. In fact, the Bible teaches if we partner with the Father, if we keep our eyes on him, focus with him, and work out where he's working, set our sights on the realities of heaven, we can raise the dead. We can help the blind see. We can speak truth into circumstances that bring life and hope to someone that's lost and broken. Because Christ and his power is in me. And it's in you. I've got this, um, I've got this car I got for Christmas. Um, did a bit of work to it. It's got eight cylinders. Um, it's got a lot more power than it had when I first bought it. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. And, and I give God the glory for blessing me to be able to have this toy. But I do a lot of driving, so I'll justify it any way I like. But let me, let me say it for this reason. Not to boast, but to explain the car has so much power under the hood that if I unleashed it, I probably couldn't control it. But when I'm driving on the open road at 100 kilometres an hour with the cruise control on, it's idling at about 1,400 revs. Chug, 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 chug. No problems at all. It's coasting. And then on the Napier Taupo Road the other day, there was a couple of cars I needed to get around and a truck, and seven other things that were in my way. So I took it out of sixth gear and put it into third. Oh my goodness. Power. Instant power through the engine, translated through the gearbox, the diff back to the back wheels. Pew! Off we go. You've got power in you. My question is, are you on cruise control? Are you idling along? Or are you willing to chuck it down a couple of gears and go hard? Seriously, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and you and you and you and you and all of us, regardless of our age, regardless of how young we are or how old we are in our faith, regardless of the position or the title or the season of life we're in. We're in the shadows or we're in the light. It doesn't matter. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and me. And we've got we to gotta do something about it. You know, Please, don't just stay in cruise control. Stick to the speed limit, but don't stay on cruise control. Finally, finally, the last verse in, um, in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to take it out of the New Living. It's the one I read devotionally, but for this morning I wanted the NIV, but this last verse here. The church, who's that? Us, his body, body of Jesus, is made full and complete by Christ. Oh, sorry, did I offend you? <laughs> Only two walked out, that's, a, that's an improvement. 
Christ, his body, you and me, all of us together in family, we're made complete by him. You know, I'm not here to teach on, we could teach all afternoon, a couple of hours left, but we won't do that. But the body knit together by him made fully and complete. Do you know what that means? You know, in marriage, easy example, I can't do my life without Kathy. We're one now. But us, body, made to work together, made complete by Christ. Work together on this. You don't have to be in isolation. This is not a team where we have one, one superhero and everyone else just follows along, tidying up the mess. That's not the model of the church that Jesus taught us. We're one, made complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Hmm. So, in closing, as I finish, I know what you guys do at the end, um, but I like, to, I like to have an opportunity for you to do God, business with God and God to do business with you. We've had several opportunities already today. But I find that the word of God that comes speaks much, much more clearly than the words of man. So, uh, you know, I, I suppose what I'm saying is, let's have a moment. Let's have a God moment and allow him to speak to us. Let me pray. Thanks, Jeff. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. You are so magnificent. We stand before you, God, humbled, but in awe of your majesty. You're sovereign, and your hand is at work in every single one of us, every moment of our lives. God, regardless of our circumstances and what they look like and how we feel in this moment, we acknowledge the truth that you are at work in our lives. Holy Spirit, right now, we invite you to shine your glorious light into our hearts. Lord, I invite you to shine your light into every dark corner of my heart that you might bring anything to light that you want to touch today. God, we sing, we surrender our hearts to you, and so now we actually do it. We say our hearts are open. You are the master craftsman, and we are your project. We thank you that you called us into adoption through Jesus, that you saved each one of us by grace, and as we declare faith in you, we stand righteous, in right standing before you unashamed of the gospel of Jesus, proud to be a child of the God of the Most High. Lord, I thank you that your perfect love casts out all fear right now, that we have no need to be afraid to stand before you because you are a good and loving Father. You're so gentle in how you touch us. But Lord, you're also dependent on us allowing you the space to do that. So right now, we invite you to touch our hearts, to show us if there's any area of our hearts that need your healing restoration through your love and your grace. And as we, as we do that, I declare in faith 
that the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and he pours living water into your weary soul. He pours living water into every part of your being to bring restoration, to bring strength, and to affirm the hope that you have in him. Yeah, precious, precious Lord. We thank you for this time together as family. But most importantly, we thank you that you love us. Amen. Amen. Amen.